This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Today we're going to go through Isaiah 43. We're going to find an old story, a story that many of us have heard many times. Bad things happen. Desperate people turn towards bad solutions, and they eventually forget the right solution. Now, we've heard all sorts of these narratives, and often we've only heard one part of it, maybe the, the middle portion, or we just skip to the end and we make our assumptions. Sometimes we find that our stories get glossed over in certain areas, and it makes it really difficult to understand what really happened. Well, today in our passage, we're going to get to look at the full story. We will find that Yahweh actively works for the complete restoration of the people he formed because he loves them. For each section, we'll take a look at the problem God's people are experiencing and the solution God provides for his people. We see how Yahweh works through three problems for the restoration of his people. The first problem is that people have trials and are scattered in verses 1 through 7. The second problem is that the people took up idols and other nations assembled. We'll find that in verses 8 through 21. And the third problem is that the people ignore Yahweh and make no sacrifice in verses 22 through 28. So to say that one more time, again, the people have trials and are scattered. The people took up idols and other nations assemble. And the people ignore Yahweh and make no sacrifice. So before we turn to these sections, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to give us um, wisdom this morning uh, as, uh, as I share his word. Father, we do thank you for our time together. We ask that we would hear what you would want us to hear. And I ask, Lord, that you would um, you'd lead by the Spirit and that uh, it would penetrate, the word would penetrate our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's orient ourselves a little bit of where we are at in Isaiah 43. This point is just after a lifetime of exile in Babylon. And that time was this time of lament and hopelessness. They were far from the city and kingdom that they grew into at the height of their history. And we're dropped into Isaiah just after that exile has ended. This time is a time of comfort and hope when the exiles will migrate back to Jerusalem and rebuild the second temple with the blessing of King Cyrus, who issues this unprecedented decree. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. This 
extraordinary announcement was given as the, the Lord stirred the heart of King Cyrus. That showed that this was God actively working to restore his people. And to the people, hearing this read aloud across the land, it demonstrated God's complete control of the greatest empires in the world. Now, God, one of his, his, his name, the name that, that he, he says he wants to be called by is, is Yahweh. So you'll hear me say that throughout the sermon today. It, it means I am, or I am who I am. It's the name that he wants to be known by, by his people, because it, it's a signal of the covenant that he has with them that he's in relationship with them. So with that, let's take a look at the first problem Yahweh works through, the, works through for the restoration of his people. Now, as part of the larger narrative, and as I'd mentioned before, bad things have happened. Not only during the exile, but before that, as the kingdom separated and began to crumble. And before that, in the wilderness for 40 years. And before that, during 400 years of slavery in Egypt, the people, they were well acquainted with bad things happening. So even though these people, they're, they're leaving exile, it'd be no surprise that the people would anticipate continued struggle, struggles and that they would contemplate that rebuilding a culture in a place of their own would be a challenge considering all that has been lost so far. A God, he anticipates this trepidation by first acknowledging that they will have fear. He says it in verse 1. And he says, don't fear. This admonishment, it's not uncommon when we see a, a change that's happening or some new venture begins I mean, consider when Moses, he received, remember the assurance that he received when he was commissioned by God to go and stand up to Pharaoh? Or think about, he would say to the people, be strong and courageous when they enter the promised land with Joshua. Yahweh is constantly in the business of dispelling fear as he sovereignly sends his people out from one situation and into another. In the following verses, he, he, uh, he continues to acknowledge that they will have trials. He says, they'll pass through the waters. And he'll say, they'll pass through the rivers. Or they'll walk through fire. Now, this is easily understood as hyperbole. But it's got a little bit more teeth than that. Because they'd all happened. <laughs> the people walked out of Egypt only to encounter a Red Sea. And then 40 years later, when entering the promised land, they're standing at the Jordan River, and they're wondering how fast this current was actually moving. I get that image of when you're, you're playing Oregon Trail, we're talking to the older people here, and you know, the, the canasta wagon's trying to get across, and you're just wondering, is it going to tip how many oxen and people are you going to lose? And whether it be stories of Moses walking up Mount Sinai covered in smoke, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Nebuchadnezzar's oven... People had walked straight into fire multiple times. So these allusions to these trials, they resonate at a deeper level with these people. They had these trials before the exile, they had them during the exile, and they would continue to have trials. Well, our other issue is that the people are scattered. As the kingdom was split into two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, 
Assyria was pressing hard from the north. They were they're going into Israel and they were dividing and conquering the people in the north end of the nation. And eventually they exiled those people. And it wasn't until sometimes later that the southern kingdom of Judah that was conquered and those people were exiled to Babylon. So this, this exile, this deportation, it wasn't clean. People were getting spread all throughout the north and the east and at different times, and, and they didn't have a citizenship of this united nation that they once had. It was messy. How and where all the tribes ended up, it wasn't understood then, and it's still not well understood now. So these issues, they're, they're presented in this section without placing blame. Unlike a lot of other places in Isaiah where we see a lot of this and then that, no, here it's saying people are scattered, trials are going to happen, and that's because the Lord's point here is to actively work through this problem for the complete restoration of his people. He would do it. So the solution for the people to having trials and being scattered is for God to assert his protection and control. God establishes who he is and what he will do. He says, I created you. I formed you. Makes clear that he was always in control in his creation. Their very existence was proof in itself. But considering the circumstance, the Lord explains how he will protect them. In verse 2, he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. And again in verse 5, he says, do not fear, for I am with you. Bad things happen. And they'll continue to happen. Even in times of rejoicing but he is with his people, walking alongside as he did in the cloud at the parting of the Red Sea, and as he did in the ark when he stopped the Jordan from flowing completely, and as he did standing in Nebuchadnezzar's oven where he sustained the flesh of three faithful boys. Yahweh doesn't stand far off. He works for the complete restoration of his people by actively protecting them getting involved. That's what makes him the true God. He himself does the work. And this is the theme through this whole portion of Isaiah. Then another solution he says is he will trade for them in verses three and four. He's willing to give whole nations, nations with might and resources. The mind of Yahweh was set on the people he chose even though they weren't the most powerful and wealthy. And finally, he says he will gather them in verses five and set five through seven. Even though they're spread all over in this, in this messy diaspora, he will bring the people from all four directions of the world. We read the affection Yahweh has for his people, calling them his sons and daughters. Even notice his inflection of the call as give them up, don't hold them back. It's an active call, a gathering up solely accomplished by him. And there's, there's this joy in this gathering of the ones he's formed. It's for his glory. 
And this is all great. But why? Why should this Savior actively work for the restoration of his people? Verse 4 makes it plain. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Consider the context after years of exile. It's a judgment brought on after years of disobedience by the people. Read earlier in Isaiah or turn somewhere in Ezekiel, and you'll get some explanations of how rough their behavior was. But here and now, despite all of that, Yahweh tells his people, I love you. There's there's no other way to explain it other than he loves them because he loves them. It's the heart of God that's, that's reflected as we saw with Hosea towards Gomer. And then consider this morning, all people who are called by his name are sons and daughters. Those who are being gathered into this eternal kingdom as citizens of heaven, which we explored a few months ago in Philippians 3. So if you're called by his name, Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior calls you precious, honored, loved. He loves you because he loves you. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 reads, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For us, just like the exiles coming home, God doesn't sit on the sidelines. He entered into our reality and did the work for our complete restoration by dying on a cross for our sins. If you're sitting here this morning and you, you have not ever considered that love, or maybe you're, you're resisting it, hear these words. You are precious. You are honored. You are loved. Perhaps that's God calling you from far away this morning. Calling you to repent of your sins and believe on his active love by dying on a cross for your full redemption and the restoration of all things to himself. The work he's doing in each of us, in the whole world, is a complete work from start to finish. Now as we move into the next section of the passage we find that Yahweh actively works for the complete restoration of the people he formed, despite their second problem. They had taken up idols, and the nations assemble. We see this in verses 8 through 21. These issues were in play prior to the exile, and they, continue to be, they would continue to be factors after the people returned. So the people had taken up other gods, And then they made idols to these other gods. And sometimes they even made idols to worship God in the wrong way. Now, there's a big problem here. 
This is a direct breaking of the first and second commandments. And it's ultimately the reason for the demise of the kingdom. And it, it started from jump. Even before they, they had the law in hand, Aaron's down there at the base, base of the mountain making a golden calf at Mount Sinai. And then in the promised land, king after king, we build these high, high places to other gods or those, those high places would be there and the kings would not tear them down. This was rife in the culture. It's rife even as Jeremiah prophesied, it would lead to exile. But it didn't stop. The people kept choosing to serve other gods. Now it's unclear if this practice was still happening in Babylon, but what is clear is that God used that time to discipline the people for this practice. While worshiping other gods was a direct disobedience, the ascendance of other nations and empires, that was more circumstantial as a result of the practice. So let's look at the nations being assembled in verses 8 and 9. Persia now holds earthly power. There was, there was not this war that ended where Israel and Judah, they like victoriously obliterated their captors and went back to Jerusalem. No, remember, this, this release was at the hand of God. It was by God alone stirring the heart of King Cyrus. So there's no doubt that from this geopolitical standpoint, the released exiles, like, they didn't have power in and of themselves. They were released and commissioned to build a second temple since the first one was destroyed at the start of the exile. That temple, it was a signal to the people of national strength. But like the nation itself, this second temple would not be, would not be quite as glorious as during this time of Solomon. When the people gathered at the foundation and the, the structure was being poured, you know, kind of like a groundbreaking ceremony, you know, with the, the shovels, that, that sort of moment. There's people and they're, they're shouting, and some people are kind of shouting with joy, and then there's these other people who are older, and they're, they're crying, they're crying out, and you couldn't distinguish, like, the shouts of joy from, from these shouts of mourning, that's because these first people, these older people who were mourning, they'd seen the first temple. And they could see that things would never go back to the way it was. Even the Lord, he speaks through Haggai as he, as he sees this. He makes note of the difference, saying, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? See, the game had changed since the height of the kingdom after the exile. Therefore, a perspective shift was needed to, to solve these problems. So Yahweh provides four solutions to the problem of powerful nations and idol worship. Firstly, he declares his eternality by saying in verse 10, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Yahweh, remember, loosely translated, I am, was before other gods, and he was before other gods before, during, and after the exile. Secondly, in verse 11, we find that this God saves. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I love this in the prophets when we read the words, he himself. 
Our God is an active God who steps in. He doesn't send somebody else to save us. He comes himself. Thirdly, we find that he acts with omnipotence. We see this in verses 13, 14, and 17. It says, there is none that can deliver from my hand. I work, but who can turn it back? In 14, he says, for your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. It's by his work that he would bring the people out. And it's by his hand that he would topple opposing nations from their high heights. And he would do it the time and how he chooses. In verse 17, he says, Who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior? They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Our God is powerful, even among any nation. God doesn't wait for when some opponent is weak. He can at any time exert his power and authority over any nation in the world. And lastly, he said he's doing something new. Behold, I am doing a new thing. How it springs forth, do you perceive it? The game is about to change. As we've seen in our story, there have been these ups and these downs for the nation, and it seems that perhaps it will always continue this way. But God says, something new is happening. There is this shift in the way God's people would operate within the world. The shift is towards a true water and a true drink that was only alluded to in the people's history. And the question again is why? In verses 20 and 21, it says, because I chose you and I formed you. I think about something I did a few years ago during COVID. We were all locked in. It's like four years ago. Can you guys believe it? Four, four years to start. Man. And so I decided I wanted to build up my own gym because my gym was closed down. You couldn't go in. So I needed a bench. And I had miter saw. You know, saw that goes like, like that, that one, right? Um, and I got the two by fours, went to Home Depot, and I measured them. I measured twice, cut once, and I made the bench. And I sat on the bench. And that sense of joy I felt sitting on that bench was amazing. Because it was special. It was my bench. I created it. I formed it. It wasn't like any other chair that I've ever sat on. And the bench isn't even perfect. It kind of wobbles just a little bit, and it's not even finished. <laughs> but I know it can hold over 500 pounds because my, my buddy, Pastor Dennis, he benched like 275 on it, so it, it can stand up. It's great. Anybody who wants to come bench, come on over. We'll see how much weight it can hold. It's my bench. I made it. There's a significance to things that are formed. God feels the same way about us. He sees us, and he says, I formed you. There's nothing that can change that. The other reason he does these things is so that you may know and believe. 
God wants to be known for who he is and what he has done for the people he loves. We are so forgetful, constantly turning from one distraction to another. The whole story of the Old Testament tells of a people who would constantly forget the ways that God had provided in desperate times. And for these people specifically, his people, Yahweh desired that they that, he had, that they had this intimate understanding of who he is as opposed to alternative gods and nations. And that is why, to sum up our second problem this morning, his solution to the people taking up other gods and the ascendance of other nations is for Yahweh to declare his eternality, to save, to act with omnipotence, and do something new. This is an application for us as we live in a world where the situation is fraught. And temptation towards distractions only grow day by day. Here's an example. Algorithms in AI, they're no different than idols in that they're made by humans. They have no real eyes or ears, but can bend hearts and minds based upon subjective inputs and perceived outputs. So in our time, the solution can't only be to avoid every algorithm and every piece of AI. We can't avoid the infiltration of every idol that comes our way. can't only do that. We have to meditate on the one true God and his mighty works. We have to fill our mind with, with those things that are right and true so that we can discern what is false. When we do that, then we can understand that wooden and digital idols alike are no match for the creator of their creators. And the people, they struggled to do this. They didn't diligently tear down the high places to their false gods. So they have a third problem. The people ignore Yahweh and make no sacrifice. They had forgotten how to do what is right. In accordance with the story that bad things happen and then people make bad decisions, they have forgotten the right solution. And this is still the case after so much care and provision for this people. Again, people are forgetful. So as we read uh, the history of the nation and its downfall, there is this constant back and forth where people take up idols and they ignore the Lord. And then they ignore the Lord, and then they take up idols. It's typical for the time. They, these things, they, they went hand in hand. How much of a problem is this? It's a big one. Let's look at 2 Kings. You don't have to turn there, but I'll go through the story. We see in chapter 22 of 2 Kings, this 26-year-old king, Josiah. He was king when he was eight years old. So he's 18 years into his reign. And he decides it's time to empty the bucket at the temple. Roof was terrible. It was leaking everywhere. So he said, all right, let's get the money out. We're going to fix the stone. We're going to fix the woodwork. The place had fallen from its former glory. So they, they get the project going. They hire the right people. And the priest, he's got to do some cleanup. So he's got to go clean up the things that, you know, he's around. He, you know, he's in the basement. He, he finds this book. It's not too uncommon. I mean, we hear about Pastor Ash's books all the time in these stacks, right? He's going to like take them out. And so, but, but here's the thing. This book, it wasn't like an old copy of The Hobbit. Listen to this. 
Hokiah, the priest, the one who's cleaning up the area, says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Like it's a surprise. Are you kidding me? The book of the law, the, the book that would outline how the temple would be built, how, how the tabernacles, the, the whole law was lost in the house of the Lord. Could you imagine? It's like, Robin, he walks up here from kids. He's like, hey, guys, I found a Bible down in kids. <laughs> this was bad. The priest had ignored Yahweh so long that his word wasn't even open in his own house. It's hard to get around this example. It's, it's so poignant. You know how sometimes we like review the evidence in our mind and we're, we're thinking about how, how bad a thing really was and we kind of downplay like, well, you know, you know but this, this one couldn't be argued. It's not like a portion of the book hadn't been read for a while or like the book was on display in the foyer, but it was never opened. No, this book is physically out of sight and clearly out of mind in the house of the Lord. Now, King Josiah, he knew how much of a problem this was. And so he invites the word of the Lord to resolve this grave issue. So Holda, the prophetess, she's sought out and, and she speaks the word of the Lord, says, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. Some 35 years later, the temple was destroyed by the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, and the exile started. It's clear they ignored Yahweh by not having his word. Led to another problem. They made no sacrifice. This we find in verses 23 and 24. Isaiah outlines multiple potential sacrifices that could have been offered. Did it almost just to make the point that they hadn't even tried. Like, they could have brought something. It didn't have to be home-cooked. Even just a bag of chips. Right? They, but, but they brought nothing. They were making offerings to other gods, but not to Yahweh. In fact, after jo Josiah hears from the prophetess, he sets up these reforms, and he finally, he tears down all the high places. This is a necessary step that none of the kings before him ever did. And, and by not doing that, by not tearing down those high places, that's what helped to perpetuate this neglect of God and neglect of true worship. I mean, consider this. They couldn't have worshiped rightly if they wanted to. Because they didn't have his word. They'd forgotten how to worship him. They had no idea how to make proper sacrifice because right worship of God was outlined in the book of the law, which they lost. It's like they gave up. They ignored Yahweh. And instead, they leaned into their own preferred practices of worshiping other gods in the way that they wanted to. This is why verse 23 says they became weary of him. And this word is, is used as this, this pivot towards, towards a solution we're going to get to, but it's interesting how the word is used. So they ignored him because they were weary of him. So then God responds that he had not wearied them to make a sacrifice. They had means to do it, they just didn't care to try. 
And instead, the truth of the matter is that the disregard for the book of the law, the breaking of the first and second commandment, along with a legion of other sin, and the lack of sacrifice for the atonement of that sin, that caused God to say this, you have wearied me with your iniquities. Lord makes it plain. Now, this is a great setup for the solution we find. The whole passage, we've seen problems and we've seen solutions. But those, solution, those problems are kind of externally demonstrated or they're, they're situational. But the people here, they have the biggest problem yet. They've got sin in them. They can't remove it themselves. And sin, the book of the, uh, and sin, which Isaiah says later, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, sin creates this wider void than any river or sea. But God, Yahweh, the relational, known, actively working God has a solution. Not with sheep and fat of rams, but with something new. Yahweh says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Now, that really is something new. The book of the law makes it clear that blood sacrifice is what makes atonement for sin. And there is so much blood and specificity to the sacrifices. These people weren't even trying. But he loves them because he loves them. So he himself will make atonement despite their disobedience. And surely, like, the, the implication, it didn't, it didn't register. Any time they'd contemplate it, it would have just confused the hearer. Blotting out transgressions, like, that, that, requ- that requires blood. God is spirit. How's God going to do this? He's going to do it himself. And they wondered, like, like Isaac wondered, how God would provide a sacrifice for his firstborn son as they were walking to the altar. And then 10 chapters later, we read of this suffering servant in Isaiah who was pierced for our transgressions, and by his wounds we are healed. Taking in whole these, these prophecies, they were amazing, they were hard to grasp. Peter says the prophets, they were trying to discern the events. They were they're trying to, to get it. Even the angels, they were looking into these things and they're, they're watching this salvation story like with great anticipation. Like this, this, is, this is amazing storytelling almost. But for the people, all that was clear is that God's solution would be their complete restoration by his active work. It's all they knew. That's all they could have faith in. For us, we get to look back and see how these things were accomplished by Jesus, the great I am on the cross, the greatest active work of love in history. The people didn't have that element of the story understood yet. So they would need to believe by faith, like Isaac, that God would provide a sacrifice for their salvation. Yahweh didn't leave it there. In case they still weren't getting it, 
He presses the point a little further that only he can accomplish this work. They were hopeless to do it. In the final verses, as a means of grace to show them their uncleanness and need of him, he calls them to argue together, state their case. It's a way of saying, like, let's take account of what's happened. Sort through the things that have occurred. Go back and forth a bit. Sit at the table. Hash it out. It's only something a relational God could and would invite. Forgetting Yahweh, forsaking him, that would continue to produce destruction. But having that tough interaction, that hashing it out, that would accomplish a work of complete restoration. Even the meaning of the name Israel, there's this sense of this weighty relational dynamic. It carries different nuances and meanings, but one is to contend with or wrestle with God. Well, another is God prevails. See, this wrestling with God, it's an exercise that always ends with God prevailing. It's an act of his relational love and an active work for people's complete restoration. So you see that his solution to people ignoring Yahweh is to invite them to argue, state their case, have a tough discussion, wrestle with him. His solution to people making no sacrifice is to blot out sin himself prevailing over sin. What a message of mercy. Why? Again, why? Why would God do this for such a disobedient people? You know the answer by now. Because he loves them. He calls them precious. He chose them and he formed them can't leave his people with iniquity. That would separate them from him forever. His desire is to dwell with his beloved eternally. It's his heart. So this morning, let's not ignore the one who loves us. Let's not leave his word in the basement of our soul. Have it close at hand. Open it. Read it. Meditate on it. Meditate on how the story of the Bible is one of God's love compelling him to work for our restoration. It's a great time to start a Bible reading plan. I'm already behind, but I'm doing it. And maybe this morning you're not, you're not there right now. You've had some hard years. I've had some hard years. Maybe it's time to argue. State your case. Sit down at the table with God. Wrestle, hash those things out. He's calling you into this real and raw fellowship that he might show you how beloved you are as his chosen creation. That he might do something new in you. We've got problems. Bad things happen. In desperate times, we often make bad decisions. We often forget the right solutions. 
I'm thankful this morning that we are formed by a God named Yahweh who actively works for our complete restoration because we are precious and honored and loved. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.